Medical Monday is proudly brought to you with the compliments of Discam. Pharmacists to care. And good morning to you. It is a beautiful, beautiful Monday morning uh, coming out of Johannesburg. We had some rain last night. It's absolutely just wonderful. Kind of broke that unrelenting heat. So, um, yeah, let me tell you a little bit. Over the weekend, I saw a, a movie about Freddie Mercury. Now, I don't know if you know, but he was... Uh, he was one of the first international celebrities to actually um, declare his HIV-AIDS status. Unfortunately, while the world media speculated, um, he was forced to make a final announcement, and that came, I think it was two days before he actually passed away. But one of the very interesting points that the movie makes is about the treatment that he was receiving, and he was receiving it at home. They had arranged that because... um, Obviously, you've got a celebrity, you know, the likes of uh, Freddie Mercury. He could not go and get treated at a clinic without, you know, having uh, the media involved and people knowing about it. So he was treated at home, and it goes into these very, very unpleasant, very, very toxic um, drips that were used to treat his HIV-AIDS. And by that stage, it was full-blown AIDS. So I thought, you know what, it's a, it's a good idea for us to look at how treatments for HIV, um, HIV and AIDS, known as ARVs, antiretrovirals, um, how they have metamorphosized over time. And, you know, is there prophylactic, is there a way to treat HIV AIDS before you get the HIV virus? So... Uh, We've asked Dr. Michelle Moorhouse to come into the studio. She's a senior research clinician at Witt's Reproductive Health Institute. Welcome. Thank you, Kathy. Thank you. It's great so, to be here. Thank you very, very much for coming in. Mm. Um, how have uh, HIV or ARVs, um, you know, how, how have they changed? You know, you, you heard what I was saying about, about sure. Freddie Mercury. And eventually he just said, just stop this, because he was feeling so incredibly, incredibly ill from the ARVs. Mm, absolutely. So, I mean, back in those days, uh, the t- treatments were very, very toxic. And as you saw in the movie, they were intravenous drips mainly. And actually another movie which showcased it was the movie Philadelphia. where Gosh, you devastating. Saw, yes, and you saw Tom Hanks always with the drip stand and getting thinner and thinner. You know, and, and the first treatment that we actually had for HIV was what's called AZ. ZT or azadothymidine, which interestingly enough was originally developed to be a cancer drug um, and it didn't really work in the cancers that they thought and with the company it's now GSK, they kind of shelved the drug, put it away and once we discovered what the one of the the enzymes involved in the the viral life cycle was, they realised actually that they might be able to use AZT. The problem with it was, I mean you will know that people who get treatment today, they go on to three drugs and of course AZT was only one drug and it's certainly not the most potent of the ARVs that we have. So it was highly, highly toxic. They had to take extremely high doses. And, you know, for for a while it gave them a bit of life back, but unfortunately those responses were self-lived, so short-lived rather. And so in the time... 
Since the, the ARVs have developed, we've seen quite an evolution where we've gone through, there was the one drug, then more drugs came along, so we went on to dual therapy, got slightly longer treatment effects, but again, eventually failed and still relatively toxic drugs. And then it was in 1996 that the breakthrough came through that actually you needed three drugs to treat it. But even at that point, it was pretty toxic drugs, uh, and often it was sort of handfuls of pills several times a day. There wasn't much forgiveness, so you had to pretty much set your clock by it. And, of course, if you traveled across time zones, that didn't matter. You still needed to get those in every eight hours. Wow. Uh, you know, and you literally had to time it by the clock. And they had horrible side effects. You know, they used to sort of make your skin slough off and give you horrible changes in body shape and, uh, you know, really bad peripheral neuropathy, so pain, painful feet and hands and that type of thing. And then we sort of have swung back now where our patients get, usually most of them, get one pill once a day, and that's their ARVs, uh, and much better are tolerated than what those earlier ARVs were. But, you know, at the time, people were so grateful to get some extra life that they put up with all those toxic side effects, you know, for as long as they could. But now our treatments are so, so much better and so much simpler, of course. Let's go back to something that you said. In 1993 mm. um, came the big uh, breakthrough, mm. right, with this AZT. AZT. No, AZT was 1987. Oh, was, 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 was pre. Yeah. Okay, so 1996 um, came this breakthrough where... Drug manufacturers, researchers realized that they were in, that you needed three drugs to treat HIV. What are the three drugs and why do you need three? So it really varies. It's different. What People often used to call it the cocktail, and it was different cocktails depending on what there was. In the earlier days, there wasn't much choice of what would go into your cocktail, whereas now there is relatively more choice. But usually what it consists of, there are two drugs which make kind of the backbone, and then you add a third drug to that, which is sort of more your power drug in there. Um, and, and as I say, those combinations can vary. A lot of the drugs that we used initially are not available anymore because of their toxicity and because we have such better drugs today. So, for example, we don't really use drugs like stavudine or didanazine anymore, and those were the ones that were quite often responsible for those nasty side effects that I mentioned. And then in terms of the third drug in the regimen, even those drugs have changed, and I mean, at the moment, we're on the brink of very exciting times with new drugs about to be introduced into our own public sector here in South Africa. Right. I believe that there's a, there's a drug called Mylan. So Mylan is a drug company, a generic yes. drug company. They yes. produce a, a drug, as many other generic companies do, um, which is going to be rolled out shortly within the in the public sector. So it's not just Mylan. There's other companies like Cipla and Aspen and various other generic companies. You know, it's because of the generics that we are able to treat as much as we do in South Africa. South Africa... We get our ARVs so much cheaper than anywhere else in the world, and that's simply because of the size of our we have economies such, of scale. Yeah, our buying power is huge. We buy as much ARVs as what Global Fund, as what PEPFAR do, uh, and we consume about 25% of the world's generic ARVs. So we're a massive buyer in the market, and on account of that, our treatments are so much more affordable here. Do we get any funding here from PEPFAR? We get pep funding from PEPFAR, but not to buy ARVs as such. We pretty much buy our own ARVs. We're we get funding from PEPFAR is usually more around the health system strengthening and, and those kind of aspects. You know, it doesn't help if you've got great ARVs, but the health system is falling apart. You can't, you know, you, you need to invest in the health system to be able to deliver the ARVs to, to the patients. Sure. And these and these new generation drugs mm. where you, you were saying, and I can imagine the, the relief, you know, to, to sufferers with H or patients mm. with HIV or AIDS is uh, one pill a day as opposed to handfuls and handfuls that have to be three times a day. 
It's uh, what are the side effects? So actually, we've had a one pill once a day around for quite a while. We introduced yeah. that a fair amount of time ago into the program. It's just we're moving on to an even easier one to take. Because the one we've got at the moment, this one has got efavirenz and uh, uh, tenofovir and emtricitabine in it. The emtricitabine, not much there in the way of toxicity, but in terms of the side effects from this particular combination that we're using at the moment, the efavirenz causes often sort of neuropsychiatric type side effects. So patients complain. In fact, I shouldn't be using the word patients. We should be talking about people living with HIV. People living with HIV tend to f- experience uh, bad dreams. Um, and so most, for the majority of, of them, it does actually go away. But there are a, a number for whom this may persist. And then the other one in the combination that gives some problems with toxicity is sometimes the tenofovir can cause some kidneys around issues, issues around the kidneys rather, and uh, also long term can cause some a little bit of thinning of the bones. Um, but, you know, we, we monitor patients that are on treatment and generally this this renal issue that we see is not as big a problem as we thought it might be when we started using tenofovir. How close are we to developing a cure? Oh, that's always a difficult question. There's so much, you know, when you look at HIV and how much we've learned from HIV that we've been able to apply to other areas of medicine. And when you look at the introduction of ARVs, which is probably one of the most successful public health interventions since vaccines and antibiotics, uh, you know, it's Thank been God. massive. I mean, the, the impact of HIV AIDS is massive. It is. You know, yeah. in South Africa, I mean, do you remember about uh, these child-headed households? Mm. There were there were tens of thousands of child-headed households where you've got, you know, eight- and nine-year-old kids raising their siblings. And I just, it was absolutely devastating. Mm. And uh, while that was happening, I mean, there were these campaigns that the government was running, and um, I think there was also an organization called Love Life. Yes. And they were saying, abstain. Mm. And that was the message, and the message was safe sex. Somewhere along the line, it became very, very successful. Mm. And... It kind of, you know, dwindled the the campaign of mm. getting this through this very very strong message of abstinence or, um, you know, using using a condom. Yeah, it was the ABCs: abstinence, be faithful, and condomize. There so. we go. And now it's on the rise again. Now HIV well, statistics. Well, no, actually, our numbers of new infections are going down. Are they still going? They down? are going down. The number of people living with HIV is increasing, but that's because we're putting them on treatment and they are staying alive, so they're living longer. You know, we expect our patients with, with our people living with HIV nowadays. We don't necessarily expect them all to die of HIV. Most of them will probably die with it, and they'll be dying of other things, like diabetes is the second biggest killer in South Africa at the yes. moment, which is horrific. You know, and number two and three are things like cardiovascular disease and heart disease. HIV is only number five now after being number one for many, many years. TB is the biggest killer. So we've done fantastically well with HIV, and we need to apply a lot of that to other areas of the health system. But, there, you know, going go back to your around the abstinence, be faithful and condomize, there's so much more that we have. That we can do now to prevent HIV, you know, so much more than those three simple messages. And in fact, a lot of research has shown, which we could have told you without doing research, is that telling people to abstain really is wasting your breath and wasting your time. Um, and you know, the condoms are pretty effective if you use them, like the pills. They work very well if you take them. So you know, it's always a case of if you can provide people with tools. They need to use them effectively for them to work. And yet, um, I think it was, I think it's Zambia. Is it Zambia? where they went on a, a nationwide abstinence um, campaign, unless it's with your with your married partner and no sex before marriage and that sort of thing. And 
they seem to have kind of used that very successfully. Yeah, they I have. Think it was, I think it's Zambia. Uganda, I think. Uganda, Uganda. Uganda. Yeah, there have yeah. been a number of countries who've done very well with the prevention messages. Uh, it just didn't work as well in other countries. And, you know, I mean, the most research has shown that really the most effective way to prevent the, prevent the virus from spreading is to put people who have the infection onto treatment. That's definitely the most effective way. But there are a number of other ways that you can prevent the infection as well. All right, let's talk about... Uh, prophylactic treatments of HIV. I mean, who who would firstly take that? Somebody who's leading a high-risk lifestyle? Somebody who identifies themselves as being at risk. We don't really like to talk too much about high risk because it's a little bit stigmatizing if somebody comes in and I say, oh, you're at high risk, let's do something for that. So it's somebody who identifies themselves as being at risk for HIV. And this could be your the groups you would easily think of. So you would easily think of your commercial sex workers. You would easily think of perhaps men who have sex with men as being workers. Um, I mean, and and healthcare, certain yeah. healthcare workers, but there's also other people. You know, there's people who are in relationships where the woman may not be empowered, and so you know, it looks like it's just a, a happy relationship, but she may know something different, or you know, there may be more going on. So it's not necessarily glaringly obvious which groups. I mean, another group which does remain at risk within South Africa is our younger, our adolescent girls and young women. Yes. The infection rates in adolescent girls and young women are four times higher than males at the same age. So that's certainly a group that is at risk. So, you know, these kinds of groups are people that would be candidates for taking um, a, pro- uh, a preventative medication. Why are young girls um, in that age group more at risk? There are various factors. Some of them are more social type factors, talking around sort of maybe having relationships with slightly older age groups of males who may be infected by their female partners of the same age. And so they sort of transmit to the younger group, they grow up, and then they eventually sort of have age equivalent relationships and infect the male. So it's a bit of a cycle. So that's kind of the social side of it. But there are also other risk factors which may be around biological factors. And there's a lot of research going into identifying but certainly we feel that it's most likely that, or you know, research has shown that definitely social factors play a big role in their vulnerability. I'm Kathy Kayla, and uh, thank you so much for joining me for Diskim Medical Monday. I'm speaking to Dr. Michelle Moorhouse. She's a senior research ch- uh, clinician at Witt's Reproductive Health Institute. We're talking about HIV AIDS. We're talking about treatments uh, for HIV AIDS, prophylactics coming in. Coming up, we're going to be talking about that. But um, if you want to get in touch, if you've got any questions, if you've got any comments, join the discussion. You can do that by SMSing the number 34519. SMS me on that number. You can also WhatsApp me on 061-895-1019. Medical Monday is proudly brought to you with the compliments of Discam, pharmacists to care. And uh, thank you so much for staying with me. This is the Discam Medical Monday. I'm Kathy Kaler. My guest this morning is Dr. Michelle Moorhouse. She is the Senior Research Clinician at Witt's Reproductive Health Institute. That's quite a mouthful. It's actually even longer than that. It's the Witt's Reproductive Health and HIV Institute. Oh, really? <laughs> it really is a mouthful. <laughs> Very snappy, quick name. <laughs> okay. So we're talking about HIV AIDS. We're talking about how medications have really transformed. Um, they've metamorphosized since the 1980s. I remember the first time I heard about HIV AIDS. I was on a school bus and it was initially called, I think it was the kissing disease. Mm. Do you remember it being yes. called the kissing disease? And you got it from kissing. And as a 17-year-old, I think I was 16 or 17, 
it was some, it was an absolutely terrifying prospect. Mm. Prospect. I mean, you know, you've got these raging hormones, and at that age, and uh, you know, this is kind of telling you no, no. Mm, sure, <laughs> sure. And I mean, you know, it was there, very scary. There was also a time when it was be- because the way it sort of really showed its head was where there were a number of pockets of of. Uh, strange infections called opportunistic infections that people with intact immune systems don't usually get. Uh, so things we would sometimes see in very elderly patients when their immune f- uh, system starts to, to weaken or in patients on transplants who have been given immune suppressants. And we started seeing some of these diseases emerging amongst um, gay men. And so there was a time when it was in fact called gay-related immune deficiency or GRID, which also, you know, it's really been through so many evolutions. But in fact, you know, HIV has been with us so much longer than what we realize. In Africa, when uh, we, you know, every now and again, you get these viral outbreaks of, of diseases in Africa, and they've been for many years, each time that happens, taking and storing blood, and they've been able to go back and test some of these samples. And there's samples from sort of 1959, and I think there's even a specimen that goes back even maybe to the 20s, where they where they found that when they tested these subsequently, they have HIV antibodies there. So. Do we know where... T- actually came from because yes. I, remember, I remember the stories that it came from monkeys and it, it you know it, it made the cross into into uh, the human population where does it actually come from sure so you know that is true it does come from monkeys and there's hiv1 and hiv2 most of what we see here in our area is hiv1 hiv2 seems to be very much limited to sort of western africa and that's really where the um, epidemic started, where the infection started. And a lot of people talk about that people were having sex with monkeys. It's not to do with that. It was to do with the butchering of monkeys and somehow... And consuming the meat. Yes, and consuming of the meat. Often uncooked meat. And uh, and so in that time, something happened and the viruses mutated. There's a simian virus. There's also a, a one from the um, city Mangabees. So it's different different monkeys that were involved in the two HIV-1 versus HIV-2. And then the spread tended to happen initially along your transport routes. So a lot of that initially would have been rivers. And then we started developing railway systems. So then you'll see the spread through Africa goes along the railway systems. And then, of course, in came air flights, uh, uh, air transport. And that's obviously how it got and beyond Africa. Well. Yes. Yeah. So, you know, it's very interesting when you go back and read there's some phenomenally interesting papers and books about the origin and how, how it spread and, you know, how how interesting it is to watch the evolution of, of a disease. It really is interesting because when you study a disease like HIV and where it came from and mm. how it spread, you learn about the culture, you learn about all these different factors, you learn about the, you know, the social factors Absolutely. in the different countries at the time. Yes, very, very interesting. What are the differences between HIV-1 and HIV-2? So HIV-1 uh, is what we see more generally. As I said, HIV-2 is more yeah. limited sort of that Western Africa area. It tends to have, HIV-2 has a more redolent course than HIV-1. Uh, not all of the drugs that we can use to manage hiv um, one will work against HIV-2, but some of the, the newer ones that we're using do. It's also more difficult to monitor because we don't, you know, we can use the viral load for HIV-1, which you can't necessarily use for HIV-2. But as I say, it tends to not spread quite as easily and it tends to be less aggressive than what HIV untreated is. Gosh. Um, Haemophiliacs, mm. you know, at the beginning when, uh, you know, when... The, there, there wasn't the knowledge that it was actually transmitted through blood. Um, Haemophiliacs who regularly have to receive these blood transplants, mm. there were 
in fact, the majority of the world's population or the U.S. population of hemophiliacs died, but there were a few who didn't contract uh, the HIV yeah. virus. How many people do we know about are resistant to it, and is there research being done into that? So I couldn't tell you offhand how many people around the world are resistant to it. But you know everything. <laughs> <laughs> Listen to so, you. <laughs> not, I couldn't tell you exactly how many you know, there are, but, but what is interesting is that there do seem to be some people that have um, a, a natural immunity to HIV. Unfortunately, yeah. it's not as many as we would like it to be. But, of course, they are studied intensively to try and look at, you know, is this a genetic polymorphism? Is it something cultural that's happened? Is it maybe repeated exposures? Is there something different? And, and there have been little groups. It was groups of sex workers around Kenya that managed to remain resistant to infection. Um, and so we do. We study them intensely. There are also some people who get HIV, but it doesn't seem to progress. Uh, so, of course, we study them intensely because if we could make everybody one of those, you know, then that would be great. Then it would matter. Sure. And now I remember what the question was that we'd forgotten <laughs> and got sidetracked on. It was about cure. So we're still learning so much about HIV that, yes, there's loads of cure research going on. But often for the challenges when we treat HIV with the drugs we've got, we are able to kill off the virus that's in the blood. But the virus likes to find what we call sanctuary sites. And these include the brain. It includes the ovaries, the testicles the lymph nodes and it's in those areas that we really struggle to get rid of the virus so if we treat somebody and then we take them off treatment eventually the virus kind of re takes over again because it's in those sanctuary sites and if you and and that, that's the problem we have with cure so you know the question is are we looking for what we would call a functional cure where we can do something so that patients don't have to have ARVs for the rest of their life or are we trying to find a cure where we actually just ablate it or get rid of it from the body entirely um, and so there's plenty of work going on that and a lot of that evolves around immunotherapy type um, interventions uh, work with broadly neutralized antibodies, so these are antibodies that some people develop when they're exposed to the virus that look a bit different to normal antibodies. Um, I think you've ever seen a drawing of an antibody. It kind of looks like a Y, so it's got these two arms. Broadly neutralizing antibodies have these much longer arms, and they seem to be able to... Um, uh, kill the kill the the virus, whereas uh, the normal antibodies that patient that people develop tend to not actually they're not neutralizing antibodies. They may ameliorate the effect, but they don't effectively kill off the virus. Well, they're suppressing them to a certain to a certain. But degree. they don't kill it off. Okay, so as as you've been speaking, mm -hmm. I've been thinking about you know the fact that the that the that the virus comes from from monkeys. What do we know about those monkey communities? Mm. I mean, do they is that HIV that develops and the monkey will then die from AIDS or how, how does it actually work? What do we know about that? So the simian virus doesn't tend to actually kill the monkeys. It's not got the same kind of a course as what we have seen now. And but is that the same as HIV-1? So that's more like your HIV-1. Yeah. Um, you know, and, and it's a little different because if you think as well, quite often viral diseases with the passage of time do become not as bad, or if you know what I mean. If so, for example, a lot of people now survive influenza, whereas years and years ago, people often didn't survive influenza. So it's almost as maybe with time goes, maybe we develop an adaptation or we develop a, an innate kind of immunity that... A library of, of yes, immunity. Yes, a library of immunity, which yeah. is then passed on. Um, and so, you know, it could be that there was a time when the simian virus maybe was a lot more aggressive and, a lot, and, and tended to kill monkeys, whereas nowadays it seems to be less. 
less so. However, if you expose a, a monkey to our HIV virus, then definitely that has an effect. What happens um, today with mother and child transmission? Oh, that's really one of the successes of our program. It's fantastic. I mean, if you were to not intervene at all, then the risk of passing uh, uh, passing the virus onto the baby, and we're talking about during the pregnancy, during the birth, and during breastfeeding and encouraging breastfeeding, you know, your risk could be up to up to even sixty percent of transmission. Wow. Our transmission rates in South Africa overall are less than two percent, which is great in terms of wow. global targets. There are little pockets where maybe there are some babies that are still being infected, uh, but you know we've done incredibly, incredibly well there, um, and so you know it's it's been fantastic. Nowadays we're not really seeing babies being infected at birth. What when it may happen is during ex- extended breastfeeding, and you can kind of understand why that may be a challenge. Uh, you know, having a new baby is fairly chaotic, um, and one of the best ways to actually prevent uh, the transmission via the breast milk is to exclusively breastfeed, and that can become hard at times. You know, there can be things that intervene there, and also just that chaos. It can sometimes, and, and also postpartum depression. We certainly see it in HIV-infected mothers as much as any other mothers. So, you know, all of these things can play a role in uh, the virus being transmitted to the baby, but certainly with our, our rates are really now less than 2%, so that's really fantastic. Yes, well done. Yeah, that's such a success story. Well done. Um, how early is early enough for diagnosis? For diagnosis, okay. So we so seldom catch people soon after infection. The only place where we catch soon after infection really is, is in the babies, and that's because we do you know, routine screening very early on. But it's difficult because some people do get a seroconversion illness, but it looks like a flu. You know, and every time you go to the doctor with a flu, if the doctor starts asking and delving very deeply into your sexual history, you're going to start looking at them as if they're a bit crazy. It is a little bit easier if somebody comes in with flu-like symptoms and says, by the way, uh, I was having unprotected sex three weeks ago or, you know, the condom broke three weeks ago, then that's a little bit different and and we could know to be suspicious then. But with the tests that we have, we don't really have a window. They have the window period and we can't really get that down at the moment to much less than probably 11 days with most of the tests that we use. So it takes 11 days for the results to come back or no, no, no. for it to it's manifest in your body? For us to find it. So don't forget, you get a little bit of virus that's like this little inoculum that goes in. So for a while, it's too little really to raise any thing on the radar of the immune system until it kind of reaches this critical mass then suddenly the immune system says hey there's something going on here let's do something and then starts kicking out natural killer cells and starts making antibodies and at that point only will the test become positive if we had been suspecting an exposure we could have looked for the virus itself by looking for viral um, nucleic acids you know like your dna your rna HIV has got RNA. You could look for that earlier, um, and and that's the you know those tests. But even then, you're still waiting for there to be a critical amount of virus before your tests will actually pick it up in the blood. So you, generally, the tests that we use are the antibody tests, and you know they're not likely to become positive before maybe three weeks or so. Okay, are those are those the one day? So tests? the little finger prick tests, yeah. Yes. Those are, if, if providing they're what we call a fourth generation, around about three weeks. You should be able to get a positive from there. And, and the reason for we call it a fourth generation, we've been through one, two, and three. The fourth generation one is earlier than the others, plain and simply because it doesn't just look for the antibody. It also looks for an antigen, which is a, a protein made by the virus. So it, we pick it up earlier. 
you know, one has to, well, I have to comment on medical technology. Mm. And when you hear of viruses being developed to fight other viruses, I mean, it, it's just, it's mind-blowing mm. when, one, when one considers, you know, how it's, it's all done. Sure. And how it's developed, it's just, it's incredible. And it's so reassuring. I mean, HIV has really just led the way in terms of the research and development. So much of what we've learned has been applied in other areas and has brought other areas along, perhaps more than what they would have. So much of, you know, so much of it has been applicable. You know, hep- hepatitis C, there was a, it's now easily curable, but there was a time when, when it was really hard to treat hepatitis C. And then the thought was, well, maybe if, if using more than one drug works for HIV, maybe we should apply this to other things as well, um, you know, until we started to get the really good curative drugs in, in hepatitis C. I'm speaking to Dr. Michelle Moorhouse, Senior Research Clinician at Vitz Reproduction Health Institute and HIV Center. Is that correct? <laughs> no, it's the Vitz Reproductive <laughs> Health and HIV Institute. <laughs> right. There we it's go. It's such a mouthful. It is a mouthful, but you know what? It just tells us that you are the person to go to to understand about all the research about the new developments with HIV. We've got to take a quick ad break. Stay with us. Medical Monday is proudly brought to you with the compliments of Discam. Pharmacist to Care. I'm Kathy Kayla. This is the Discam Medical Monday. Thank you so much for joining me. Today I'm talking to Dr. Michelle Moorhouse. She's a senior research clinician at Vitz Reproductive HIV Institute. <laughs> Almost. And HIV Institute. <laughs> <laughs> yes. I get it right. I've got an hour. Sure. <laughs> so if you want to get in touch with us, please do. If you've got any questions, I mean, you can hear. This is a, this is a lady who is on the cutting edge of you know, development of drugs and prophylaxis and understanding the HIV um, AIDS virus or the HIV virus. So uh, if you want to, I don't know, give us a shout. Drop us a line. You can SMS us on 34519. Don't sign your name if you, if you don't want to. Or on WhatsApp, 061 um, Can we talk about prophylaxis? We kind of did start talking sure. about it. Um, which is obviously preventative. Yes. So let's talk about that. Sure. So, I mean, I alluded, alluded to this earlier. The, the best way to prevent HIV being transmitted onwards is to get the person who has HIV to take the ARVs and to be what we call suppressed, so virologically suppressed. What that means is that they're taking their ARVs the way they're prescribed and that when we do a blood test to look at how much virus is in the blood and we try and count it, there's so little there that our tests are not sensitive enough to pick it up and so we call that undetectable we can't detect the virus in the blood bearing in mind that it only presents about represents about two percent of the amount of virus in the body in the total but that's that's what we measure okay so in terms of um of prevention, that's the best way. Get the person who has HIV to go onto medication. Uh, when their viral load is suppressed, they can't transmit onto other people. When the viral load is less than a thousand, they're very unlikely to transmit. Really, even even in unprotected sex. Yes, but there are a number of caveats around that because there are certain other things which may predispose you to. So, for example, you could be virologically suppressed, but if you have uh, another sexually transmitted infection, then that can change everything. So, you know, there are a number of things to to consider. Then we also have what is called post-exposure prophylaxis. So this is when I'm taking blood on somebody, I get a needle stick injury, and I need to take ARVs for a month. Okay, that's post-exposure prophylaxis. I've been stuck, now I need to do something afterwards. 
uh, you can similarly that's available for sexual assault it's available for the condom broke you know you can go along and you can get post exposure prophylaxis too but you it. have to take action you cannot be an ostrich and stick your no. head in the sand and think that it's going to go away and the sooner the better ideally we want you to be on those drugs 72 hours is really the longest we want to wait. But you know what? If it happens on Friday, you can still go to various centers and get it. And it's very important that you do, even if it's going along and getting a starter pack. But, you know, there are things you can do. Then we have what's called pre-exposure prophylaxis. So this is a little bit different. If, for example, maybe I am somebody who... Oh, it looks at different parts of your life. Let's say, for example, I'm a 17-year-old girl and I'm having my sexual debut and I don't really know who my partner is and I want to protect myself, then I can take what is called pre-exposure prophylaxis, PrEP. Now, PrEP is using ARVs, but we only use two ARVs in a combination for PrEP, for pre-exposure prophylaxis. And what you do is you take that as a pill every day for as long as you are at risk and for a little bit after that as well. So let's say I'm the 17-year-old girl. We can go through my life cycle. I'm having my sexual debut. I don't know a lot about my partner, so I take some PrEP because I don't know whether he might be seeing other girls. All right, then I get to maybe I'm in finished school and I'm going to go to an FET or something like that. Uh, and I want to focus What's an FET? a further educational, uh, I can't remember what the T is for, <laughs> um, further education and training. And then I decide I'm going to focus on what I'm, I'm going to study there. Um, I've got time for boys, so I go off the prep because I don't need it. You know, and then I finish and I've got a job now and I've got money to go out and have some drinks and some dates. So I'm going to maybe go back on prep until I find my partner. Then I find my partner. We get married and we have children. So I go off prep and, you know, in our 30s we get divorced and I'm back on the dating scene. And so I go back on my, onto my prep. So it's not something I start at age 17 and stay out until I'm 95. I take it for the seasons that I'm at risk. And you can apply that to anybody. You can apply that to a commercial sex worker. You can apply that to any of the groups that would be considered to be at risk of, of um, HIV infection. And so you use that. You take that daily pill and that protects you from contracting HIV. We always advise, though, even if you're going to use PrEP, you know, it should be part of combination prevention. So combination prevention techniques include things like adding condoms, using lubricants, frequent testing, screening for sexually transmitted infections, treating those infections, uh, you know, three monthly testing for HIV. So we advise it in in, in a part of a of a package to prevent HIV. Michelle, does uh, does prep um, encourage risky behaviour or risky behaviours? No, because that's an interesting question because it's, it's been one of the sort of the, the questions that people ask, you know, are we then encouraging promiscuity and are we doing that? Actually, most of the studies are showing, in fact, it doesn't. Uh, and if you look that across some of the studies that looked at PrEP to see if it was effective, and it's more than 90% effective if you use it properly, it's probably about 92% effective overall if you take it as prescribed. And if you look at some of those studies where they looked at, for example, condom use, condom use either stayed the same or may have increased in the studies, um, the number of XTIs that they got, sexually transmitted infections, either stayed the same or went down. So, you know, they, they it often, it didn't seem to really encourage risky behavior. Um, some of the studies looked at the number of partners, the number of partners didn't increase. So generally, of course, that was in the context of very strict and defined clinical studies, and we may see differences when you start rolling this out at a population sure. level. But nonetheless, if you can give people who otherwise have to rely on other 
other people to protect them. So, for example, if I am the 17-year-old girl who's going to have my sexual debut, I have to then rely on any potential partners of mine to be diet testing for HIV, to be taking the drugs and to be virologically suppressed. Whereas if I take PrEP, I empower myself to protect myself instead of relying on somebody else to protect me. Which is always a good thing. Yes. So, um, yeah, I like that it's putting the responsibility mm. um, or the the young girl is able to take responsibility. Absolutely. Anthony, hi. Uh, thank you so much for your message. He says it's a great subject choice. Where do you go about getting pre-post or tested for HIV? Great question. Thanks, Anthony. Great question. You can go to any number of places, but you know what? You can go to pretty much any primary health care facility and they should be able to test you and they should be able to talk to you about various prevention um, mechanisms. In the private sector, you should be able to go to pretty much any, any general labs. practices um, and, you know, they should be able to advise you as well. Certainly any casualties would be able to do that. So, you know, there's no shortage of facilities where you can get tested um, and where you can actually have a discussion around prevention and what methods are available. Do do people still have counselling before they have an HIV test? Yes, we still like people to be counselled. Um, you know, HIV testing isn't quite yet normalised, kind of like, you know, we blood pressure measurement can lead to a diagnosis of high blood pressure or hypertension, and yet it's so normalised. We don't think anything about sticking a cuff on measuring somebody's blood pressure and giving them a diagnosis. Unfortunately, HIV isn't that normalised yet. Um, it would be good to see a time when, in fact, HIV testing is opt-out rather than opt-in. So you kind of you walk through casualty doors. Unless you tell them you don't want to get an HIV test, you're going to get one kind of thing. And I, I think that that would certainly be a useful um, introduction. Do you think we'll ever have a case where HIV can be eradicated? It's really difficult to eradicate it altogether. We have what are called these targets, the 390, so 90% of people with HIV diagnosed or rather aware of their status. 90% of those people who are aware of their status are on treatment and 90% of those who know their status or are on treatment are virologically suppressed. If you do the maths on that, that means there's about 73% of people with HIV that are virologically suppressed, which leaves about 27% of people to walk around who are still not suppressed and potentially transmitting the disease. So, you know, it is difficult to eradicate it completely and especially since there are these issues around sanctuary sites but these targets are aimed for us to get the infection rates really well down so that we could say that in, in essence the epidemic is controlled. Okay, can we talk about some practical examples? Yes, sure. um, you were talking about you know, how ARVs suppress mm. your um, suppress the virus. Mm. So in a scenario where you've got one partner who's HIV positive but on ARVs, yes. and one partner who is HIV negative, can they have unprotected sex in a, in a normal relationship scenario? So bearing in mind we've excluded any other problems around, for example, like um, untreated no, sexually transmitted right. infections, etc., then yes, there are still certain caveats around that, though, because the day you, know, you check their viral load and it's suppressed on the day, it doesn't tell you whether or not there have been any hiccups or blips in between. So as long as that we know that that person is suppressed at their test, but also we know that they are taking their treatment on a daily basis, then yes, you know, in, in effect in that, within that context of that couple. You know, we, we do a lot of work around safer conception, and obviously for women to fall pregnant, there needs to be an exposure, whichever partner is going to be, is, is, you know, is positive or negative. So we've had great success in safer conception, and it's just around 
working with these different interventions that we can do. If we're not sure that the partner is suppressed, then that's where something like pre-exposure prophylaxis or PrEP comes in. I remember seeing, uh, I think it was a documentary, mm. on, um, on how sperm is washed from an, from an HIV-positive male. Yes. So that his sperm is washed, but he can still biologically conceive that child. So you can you do, still that, do that, but not really. We don't use it much here for safer conception. Um, the expense of it is incredibly high, um, and it doesn't necessarily result in any, any higher rates of conception. Um, safer conception can be quite difficult in the context of, of one partner having HIV. So we don't really use that because we really use the ARVs to, to work around that. All right, lots of messages coming in. Um, (laughs) All right, what advice would you give couples who have just started dating? I love this question. Mm. Thank you so much for sending it through. Um, Dr. Eve, I think she's very well-known as Johannesburg sexologist, sex therapist, uh, says everyone, even married or dating couples, should use condoms. Um, This SMS says don't think it's feasible. Strictly speaking, we do say you should still always use condoms because things can go wrong. But we also know that people are people and that they may not always. So we try to give you as many options as we can to make sure you're as safe as possible. So if we wanted to kind of do the the belts and braces approach, we would then say, have the partner on ARVs, give the other person the pre-exposure prophylaxis, still use condoms, still use lube. You know, there's so many things we can, but we know inevitably people are people and that some different approaches will be used. Um, Sorry, can you remind me a bit about the first part of the question? Um, What advice would you give to couples who have just started dating? So that's a tricky one because it's kind of, I don't know how easy it is to, on a first date, bring up to somebody, oh, well, we've just met and I'm HIV infected. Um, It may be a difficult conversation to have. So I think in the context of that, you need to probably still be using the belts and braces kind of approach. And I certainly, you know, would be very careful. But I also wouldn't leave it too late into a relationship to to broach it. And certainly if you are HIV positive, you know, the responsibility does lie with that person until they have disclosed to actually protect their potential partners. How do you have that conversation? You know, if one looks at Hollywood and and movies and one looks at the silver screen, Mm. it's all so romantic. (laughs) And, uh, you know, there's no discussion on... Of, you know, we should take our relationship to the next level. Mm. Can we go and get tested together? How do you have that conversation? It's an extremely hard conversation to have. Mm. And and it kind of kills any romance. It does. I think exactly the way you're describing it. So, for for example, I've worked in HIV for a long time. And so because of that, when my ex-husband and I split up and I went onto the dating scene, people would hear that I worked in HIV and then they would immediately become suspicious. And so I literally did what you would say to them. I would say to them, listen, you know, let's we're careful for a while. And when there's a point where we decide that maybe this is a relationship, we go and we test together. And that's exactly how I used to manage that. And I knew my tests were always going to come back negative, but I could understand why at the time, because this was still quite a long time ago, I could understand the anxiety from the other partner hearing that what I do all day at that point was you know, taking blood from people with HIV, putting drips up and that type of a thing. So that was usually the way that I approached it. And I think that uh, as sexual beings, it is kind of the responsibility of everybody out there to know something around HIV and to either be doing what you can to protect yourself, but also for those people 
people who are infected, and most of them are very, very responsible. They don't want to pass on the HIV infection. And so generally, you know, I think it's just kind of a, it's just a step that we have to add in along the way. You know, it's kind of the, you see somebody a few times, at some point you're going to start kissing, at some point you're going to go further, at some point you might do the sort of we're dating thing and the engagement. This is just a step that you put in here. We talk about what is safe and what is not. Gosh, this raises so many social issues mm. around, you know, even questions around dating. Mm. You know, is it okay to date some or to to sleep with somebody on the first date? Is it okay, you know, at what point in a relationship? I mean, this is these are important conversations that we should definitely be having. So I think, you know, at some point when you're going to enter a sexual relationship with somebody, you are going to ask them, what about how do we not fall pregnant yet? Assuming that most of us don't want to fall pregnant very early in a relationship. Listen, our pregnancy so, rates in high school I are know. absolutely Every time I see them, I sh- it's, it's shattering Yes, because this time it may have been a baby, but what happens if it was HIV? Yeah, so I, I will come back to that in a second. But, yes. you know, you would have that discussion around how you're going to prevent a pregnancy, and I think you tack on the HIV discussion to that. And I think it's become such a big thing with HIV because of the fact that HIV was initially untreatable and you died from it. But now it is a chronic manageable disease. And uh, For myself, uh, and you can ask a lot of healthcare workers, that if you were to ask me, HIV or diabetes, I would pick HIV. I have to take one pill once a day for the rest of my life. Diabetes, at some point I'm facing needles and I'm very needle phobic. Yeah. Uh, you know, and so, you know, it's very much around that. There's, you know, a point where you're going to discuss a sexual relationship, how you're preventing pregnancy, but what about how you're preventing the other H- uh, sexually transmitted infections, not just HIV, you know, the hepatitis B, syphilis. We don't want to get any of those infections. Gosh. I'm looking at the time. I could talk to you for another <laughs> hour. <laughs> I'm speaking to Dr. Michelle Moorhouse. She's a senior research clinician at Wits Reproduction and HIV Institute. Did That's I get that right? Perfect. I told you it would only take me an hour. <laughs> if you want to get in touch with us, please message 34519. That's the SMS line. You can also send a WhatsApp on 0618951019. We're talking about HIV AIDS. We've looked at the metamorphosis from, uh, you know, drugs that were used in the 19, very, very toxic, actually, drips that were used in the early days to treat HIV. It, it, was, it wasn't even called HIV then. No, uh, well, in the, by the time we had AZT, AZT, it was, but... Yeah, mm. um, and how it's transformed to many pills, many times a day, and today it's one pill once a day. And the future's even more exciting. That's fantastic. Just before I ask you to talk about the, the new drugs and drug availability, can you talk about the question that I asked you about schoolgirls? Um, you know, schoolgirls, the, the pregnancy rate is off yes. the chart, which is telling me that they are not having protected sex. Mm. And that is a very, very scary prospect. Yes. And about 50% of pregnancies are unplanned in any age group. So we well, know we know that, that with twins, at least one of them was unplanned. <laughs> yes. Um, and it is really difficult because, you know, often in the time is that, you, you know, it's not that easy to always for the for the young girls to get access to what they need in terms of protection. So when you think about a girl who's maybe still at school, how many clinics can she go to where she'd be able to go after school, where she might not face judgment about you shouldn't be having sex, you're too young. You know, get away from that. A person is going to have sex when they're going to have sex. And anybody out there who thinks that their teenager is not having sex, you're probably wrong and you have to at some point face that. So I think there's a dual role here. There is a role of 
education, but there's also a role of parent interaction as well. Um, you know, and we have all the tools. There's no reason why a young girl should get infected with HIV. We can provide her with condoms. We can provide her with PrEP if we need to. We can provide her with plenty of good options in terms of contraception. You know, she can take an oral pill. She can have a three-monthly injectable. There are also five six-year implants that are available. So Even now? Even now, those are available and within the public sector. You know, those are there and they're available. Um, and so, you know, it's a case of making the access better um, and, and also just not just access but the approachability of the people providing those services, you know, not to be judgmental. If she's 15 and she's having sex, there may be something going on that you don't know about. And if you can protect her and keep her safe rather than let her run away because she's scared of how she's treated, I think that's a very important thing. So healthcare worker, unfortunately, their attitude often plays a role in, in lack of access. Michelle, what is this uh, myelin drug that is due to hit our shelves in the next two weeks? So it's not specifically a myelin drug. Okay. Um, it's a combination of three drugs, and as I say, the generic companies are making it available. It's a combination which is called... TLD, what that stands for is what's in there. So there's tenofovir, which is the same as what's in the current treatment. Then there is lamivudine, which is very similar to the um, emtricitabine in the current treatment. And the, what's really interesting about it is the new, the third drug in there, which is called dolutegravir. Now, dolutegravir has been available in the private sector for a little Who while. makes up these drug names? <laughs> yeah, there's a, there's a specific naming... Um, Department. Not just that, but there's kind of like a, a nomenclature system used often. Oh, so, really? Yes, yeah, like uh, for, for some of the um, antibodies. If it's murine, you use a certain prefix, and if it's made from a human monoclonal antibody, it's a different one. It's complicated. So there's naming conventions. So <laughs> that plays a role. But basically what has happened is a number of generics have become available of this, which means that it's going to be this new option available for our patients in and the, the public sector. And the cost is going to come down. And the cost is going to come down. But very importantly, it's um, we've got a bit of resistance to the efavirenz um, so there's a bit of resistance to the efavirenz that we use in the current treatment. Um, but this drug has a very high genetic barrier, which means that patients who've never been treated with that class of drug before, if they fail virologically for whatever reason, um, and the most common reason for failing virologically, i.e. your virus isn't suppressed anymore, the most common reason for that is simply not taking the pill. Now, for most of the ARVs, if you don't take the pill properly, you develop resistance. But for patients who have never been exposed to this particular class with Dolutegravir, even if they do have failure, they tend not to have any resistance, which wow. means that they will eventually suppress on the drug providing they take it. And it's it's better tolerated than the efavirenz overall. So, Michelle, I have loved speaking to you. <laughs> Thank you. It, it feels like you've actually got us like right in that lab with you and you're showing <laughs> us. And Thank you very, very oh, much such a pleasure. for coming and uh, for just expounding on you know how very interesting human beings can be and Absolutely. how behavior um, really has an impact on so much of what we do. So thank you very, very much. One takeaway, takeaway thought. Oh, that's so difficult. I've got so many thoughts. You've got you so hear many. the mind okay. is so busy. But, but thank you for having me. And it's, I always enjoy coming to be able to talk to people about HIV and see that really, you know, it doesn't need to be exceptional anymore. Having HIV is something that is chronic and manageable and people live with it and die with it if they take their ARVs. There you go. Wise words, Dr. Michelle Moorhouse. And uh, thank you very, very much for joining me today. I wish you a wonderful day. God bless. Keep well. And I'll see you same time, same place next week. Bye.